Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, since 1996, online at thepulp.net. This Pulp Event Podcast features Tim King, who discusses Pulpcraft, a counterintelligence, and espionage, guide to the Pulp Adventures of the Shadow. The talk was recorded on August 13, 2015, at Pulp Fest 2015 in Columbus, Ohio. Chuck Welch introduces Tim. Thank you for coming to Pulp Fest. Thank you for coming to the first uh, event, uh, the first programming event, because uh, none of us came here to buy any pulp, so you haven't been to the dealer's room yet, right? Okay. I just looked it over. Just looked it over, because there will be more there in the morning anyway. All right, our first speaker tonight is Tim King. Tim King is a career counterintelligence officer, having worked for the United States intelligence community for the United States Intelligence Community, I had to make sure I said that twice so we knew which one you were with, and the Fortune 500 Business Community, trained in the shadowy arts of human intelligence, spy and counterspy, Tim was introduced to the shadow through the radio. His love of the character led him to the comics and to the original pulps. Among other things, his membership in the Office of Strategic Services Society and the Society of American Magicians, didn't know that one, make him uniquely qualified to explore the previously hidden element of the shadow. Ladies and gentlemen, Tim King. Good evening. I am Tim King, and uh, I'd like to encourage all of you as I go along, if you have a question, please ask it. If you've got a smartphone or some kind of internet device and you want to follow along and race ahead and Google stuff, by all means, please do, because as I was mentioning earlier, I'm at Pulp Fest talking about the shadow. It really doesn't get any better than, than this. I call this the spy guide to the Pulp Adventures of the Shadow, as, uh, as Chuck mentioned, I am a career counterintelligence officer, and people ask me, what, does that, what, what do you do? And I said, well, first of all, you need to know what counterintelligence is. Counterintelligence is the opposite of intelligence. So, <laughs> again, I'm uniquely qualified. And I tell my daughter, I read letters and I write letters. I read reports of other people's activities, either from uh, concerned reporters or from professionals looking at these activities. And I try to make a determination about whether or not I think there is the crime of espionage occurring. Do I think I see things that tell me that a spy is at work? And I can tell you as someone that's read most of the adventures of The Shadow, it was written by Walter B. Gibson, not Tinsley or any of the others. There are some unique demonstrations of a, of a really profound knowledge of tradecraft as it was practiced in the 1920s and 1930s that you just don't see in any of the other, other pulps and you certainly don't see uh, in other areas. So I want to share that with you this evening. America has had a, a fascination, a love affair with spies and espionage all the way back toward George Washington and the Culper spy ring and the war for independence, the Revolutionary War. And that love affair with espionage and spies uh, is reflected in our mass media, uh, in our popular culture. But I would say that the shadow was there first and he was there best. So the shadow is the king of mass media. When when popular culture and serialized fiction before Netflix existed, right? We were cranking them out on, on pulps, which are on sale downstairs. And uh, they came out, and he, was, he dominated. And then radio got big, and he dominated there, too. Um, Bantam reprints, uh, this new thing called the, the movie, he dominated there as well with several, um, several movies as well. So he was there first and best, but I think in all the times he's been seen, no one's really fully appreciated what was hidden there in plain sight. So Gibson was an incredible man. One of the things that uh, we're taught to do is to assess people 
based on their behaviors and based on the way they write and the way they act. And I can tell you that uh, from reading Duende History of the Shadow and interviews about Walter B. Gibson, reading all the different autobiographies about him, this guy was well north of 140, maybe 170 IQ. His eidectic memory is well known. His prolific writing is absolutely incredible. The guy is a genius. He's also a master of misdirection and magic. He was tied into magic from a very young age. A lot of commonalities between espionage spycraft and magic. Gibson, out of all the authors who've written about magic, probably has the best definition of magic. Okay? So misdirection is a core element. That's how magicians pull it off. You can be staring right at them and not see them do what it is they're going to do. He defined it as an effect and a method. The method is hidden, clouded, if you will, by the effect. And that's what he's done for all these years, all these decades, primarily in the early adventures, but later on as well. So I'm going to throw some jargon at you, and I hope um, everyone can read that. Tradecraft is a jargon term that we use to describe certain behaviors that are learned behaviors that people do when they're engaged in an act of espionage, of spying. Right? So I don't mean uh, the local snitch who's selling uh, drugs on the corner. They may or may not have some, some way to, to hide what they're doing. I'm talking about spying as it's practiced by foreign intelligence services, where they have training academies, they have funding, and they have advanced techniques to do so. So the term that I coined to describe and capture what Gibson was able to do in hiding real tradecraft in the Pulp Adventure of the Shadow was pulpcraft, combine the two together. Now, the first thing you need to know about counterintelligence is that it focuses on the foreign adversary. That's the primary distinction between security and law enforcement. Okay, so if someone breaks into your home, call a cop. But if you think an agent of a foreign power broke into your home for some reason, now I'm interested and I'd like to talk to you, right? So you may say, well, now, wait a second. Well, that didn't really work out very well. This is supposed to be here. Didn't quite make it. Uh, emphasis on the foreign. So you say to yourself, now, wait a second. Not all the adversaries the shadow faced were foreign adversaries. A few were, and a few adventures took place overseas, but most of them were not foreign adversaries. Well, let's put it in context, okay? So the, the tradecraft that I'm going to show you is tradecraft as it was practiced in the 1920s and the 1930s. Well, why the 1920s? Well, the experience that Gibson or whoever he learned this tradecraft from would have been before the first shadow uh, pulp adventure came out, right? So we're talking about the 1930s, possibly the early 1930s, 20s and 30s. And as I was doing some research on what that era was like, what I found as I would look for maps about New York City was that everything seemed to, all the maps had these map legends about people's ethnicity and national origin. So you think about Manhattan as through the lens of the 1920s and 1930s, it was all foreign. It was one big massive uh, foreign international intrigue espionage center of the universe. So we can go with that. If you're going along with these, Look at the initial formative adventures as the ones where you can see the most examples of tradecraft because that's where it really shines through. Now, Gibson has a very uh, understated way of writing. He doesn't draw a lot of attention sometimes. He doesn't make a show of the things that he's highlighting. Um, and you'll see them all throughout, but really the best ones are from the formative period. And Will, I apologize, this actually comes from you. you in, in your Duende History of the Shadow, you had six periods. I condense it just down into, into three. Walter originally said there were three periods that I <laughs> so you're saying I'm following in the footsteps of the monster. Okay, very good. Thank you. So, again, this is as it was practiced, and many of these things continue today in the 1920s and 1930s. So now, who was practicing espionage and counter-espionage, spy and counter-spy in the 1920s and early 1930s? Well, not the CIA. They weren't formed until 
1947, not the OSS, they weren't formed until after Pearl Harbor. Who's left? The Secret Service. The Secret Service. The Secret Service and the, the very fledgling Federal Bureau of Investigation, uh, known then as a Bureau of Investigation. So we're going to go through all these, uh, and I think you'll see very quickly that Gibson knew much more than I think he ever talked about. So when I say clandestine agent network, I mean a collection of people that work towards a common goal led by one person who's in the shadows, that mysterious foreign hand. When you read the newspaper and you see events around the world, know that there's much more to that, and that's really the, the genesis, the, the, uh, the essence of intelligence. There's much more going on than what you see. So the shadow, and here we have uh, Mike Kaluta's outstanding uh, marionette's image. He's acting as the spy master. People throw, usually throw around the term spy sort of generically. Spy, spies are what the other people are. Okay? We're intelligence officers. We run agents. People that I catch are spies. It's a very important distinction. <laughs> All right? So what did, what did Gibson do that was so much different than what other folks do, even to this very day? What does Jason Bourne do? What do, a Mission Impossible probably comes the closest, I guess, in modern media. Jason Bourne is the technical officer. He's Burbank. He's spotter slash Hawkeye because he does the surveillance. Right? He also does the technical officer stuff. He does the analysis. He, do, he, does the, he does it all. Well, that's not right. That's not really the way the world works. Much like a magic trick where a magician has a team of people behind the scenes that know exactly what to do and when to do it, that's the way uh, a spy master operates. So we've got Wilfredo Torres's excellent uh, depiction of the shadow. He's the spy master. And then he has two principal agents. A principal agent is basically a, a supervisor for the shadow, right? In tradecraft, I wouldn't, if all of you were working for me, I would never allow you all to be together because that would compromise my network. <laughs> two might know each other because they already known to be together. If I have these two working with these two over here, they may never actually meet because if one gets compromised, I lose four. Right? I don't want that to happen. So what the shadow does is he uses Burbank, his cutout man, his technical uh, officer as well. Right? He's in contact by uh, a wireless radio, which is outstanding technology in the day, and of course the telephone. And then on the other side, you've got Rutledge Mann, who replaced uh, Claude Fellows, and the infamous B. Jonas address, where you can also do what I would call a dead drop. Dead drop is simply a way of passing information where the two of us never meet. Because if you're my agent, it's very dangerous for you to be associated with me. Many times we think we know who the spy masters are, so we look to see with who they meet. In fact, I would say that goes on everywhere all around the world. So the most important thing for me to do is protect my sources and my methods. So we use the B. Jonas address as a cutout. We use two principal agents, uh, Rutledge Mann, who sometimes resupplies and re-equips and passes instructions, and of course, Burbank. And then you have a network of agents underneath <coughs> And I'll give Gibson some allowances. Sometimes agents do come together, Cliff Marsland and Harry Vincent hang out and go do stuff. But it is the subtlety and the nuance of the way Gibson was able to uh, uh, bring all these out that really makes it shine more so than any of the pulp characters. Because generally you have two types of agents. You have those that do, action agents, and you have those that help do, support agents. And you, never the two between should, should mix because you don't want to, again, compromise your network. And you need two types of agents. You need resident agents, people who belong where they are. Because if I show up in Chinatown, I think I stand out, right? <laughs> so you need resident agents and you need legal travelers, people who can come and who can go. And that's exactly what Gibson created from day one. Shrevenitz, support agent. Pretty obvious, right? You need transportation. 
Cliff Marsland, he creates a persona, but he is a resident agent. He's an action agent. He, he collects foreign intelligence. He goes into the Badlands. He belongs. Right? And then he brings the information back out. Clyde Burke could be considered many things. He's certainly a support agent, right? He passes things back and forth. He's, uh, a, he's an access agent. He allows a shadow inner workings to the newspapers and to City Hall and to the police force. Dr. Roy Tam can go into Chinatown when, say, Cliff Marsland can't. So too with Jericho Druk. My personal favorite of all, the, of all the agents, Myra Reldon, who I'll talk about if we have time towards the end. Myra Reldon pretends to be Chinese, Ming Duan. She is, for all intents and purposes, a, uh, an action agent, but a, a resident agent. She belongs in Chinatown through her persona. So it's the, the subtlety, the nuance, and the variety of agents that Gibson created from day one far different than any of the other uh, adventures I see out there. The other piece, when you're thinking about this in context, we have this wide variety of people. None of you have ever met each other before. You all work for me. You may not all know you work for me. You may think that I'm a Russian. You may think that I'm a German. There may be some other false flag pretense that I'm using for you to, to work for me. You may think that I'm a Roman Catholic priest and you're doing the right thing. All I care about is you do for me what I want you to do. So how do I make sure that each of you can interact with me and receive my instructions and know and ensure your safety and security? Well, one way to do that routinely is with the use of bona fides and oral parole, sometimes pronounced oral paroles. Bona fides simply means what? Identity. Am I who I say I am? I come to you and I say, look, I've got instructions for you from the master. Carry these out. How do you know that I'm not working for Shiwan Khan or uh, the voodoo master or someone else, right? So we establish and we exchange oral paroles, sign and countersign. This is a very subtle but foundational aspect of espionage that most writers never even touch on. And there it is in the fourth adventure of the shadow, almost as a throwaway scene. The stars are bright tonight, the countersign, bright stars of the planets. And then a second layer, just to ensure authentication, right? They are seven, the seven who shall rule. And then he goes on, and other adventures talk about uh, the, uh, the seven stars is a Russian czarist event. He obviously had knowledge of those. Gibson had knowledge of those. And Chinese secret societies. Also, from the very beginning, the shadow talks from the very first uh, living shadow all the way through. He mentions how in written instructions, there's both an authenticator, meaning a written parole, so that you'll know it's actually coming from the shadow, and it's serialized. So if I send you message 17 and you authenticate it, and then you receive message 19, and you go, wait a second, what happened to 18? You'll know something's wrong. That is a very subtle knowledge of real tradecraft available in the pulps that I just don't think Gibson could have accidentally stumbled across. Many of the adventures, you'll, you'll see the shadow in his darkened sanctum. The room is all black, illuminated only by a bluish light, which we'll get to here in a minute. And he's taking the reports of Rutledge Mann, he's taking the reports of his agents, he's taking the transcripts of the reports from Burbank's technical collection, all sources of intelligence, technical, human, and he's rearranging them, he's putting them on the page, he's putting in parts that are missing. <laughs> I'd like to tell you that we do it a lot more <clears throat> high-tech now, but we do it a lot like that today. And here it is. And by the way, that's still the way they did it back in the 20s. In the 30s. You have to bring them all together. You have to make them sense, right? It's like the elephant, all described by three different people. They're all accurate, but if, unless you put them all together, you're not going to have the right picture. Well, Gibson has this from the very beginning. How do you have this knowledge? And then you get on to the really good stuff, the sexy stuff that everyone thinks of when they think of espionage. 
right? Surveillance, surveillance detection, and counter-surveillance. Surveillance really is just a fancy French word for watching. And of course, in the shadow, it's there from the very beginning. Sometimes the shadow does it. Sometimes the crooks do it. Sometimes they call it watching. Sometimes it's spotter, who then may or may not become Hawkeye. But it's there from the beginning. That in, its, in and of itself, you know, probably more common knowledge. Certainly uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's adventures made use of the term watcher and, and uh, evidence this. So maybe not as, as hidden from public view as some of these others. But I will tell you, I have not read all 282 of Gibson's shadow novels. I've only read the ones that Mr. Tolan has reprinted so far. Uh, in the, 201 of them as of this month. Boom! <laughs> Available downstairs. Uh, and of course they're awesome, right? So I'm reading them along, I'm not reading them in order. So you have to understand my knowledge of this as I'm going along reading these, treating these like a counterintelligence officer, and I'm getting this, I'm scratching my head saying, wait a second. Gibson has to know. He has to know espionage method. There's no way. But I'm, I'm jumping through all the different periods, and I get to the getaway ring. I forget which reprint number that was. Someone can probably look that up real quick. But I read that, and from the very beginning, I recognize exactly what Gibson is doing. It's a surveillance detection route. It's a pre-planned route for the purpose of, of knowing, hey, am I being followed or am I not being followed? And then you can make a decision point and say, well, then I'm just going to go to the movies tonight. Or no, I'm going to go ahead and continue on with my espionage activity or criminal activity. Or I'm going to try to elude my followers, which is what happens here. Because I'm reading this, the whole novel screams surveillance detection route. And spoiler alert, it's a central part of the theme of the getaway ring. I was dumbfounded. If you go back to the fourth adventure of the Red Menace, Gibson, in his typical understated uh, manner, does not make a big deal about the fact that he's got the shadow, Kent Allard, not Lamont Cranston, he's really Ken Allen. Doing things that are counter-surveillance activity, like he walks out, he doesn't take the first cab, he doesn't take the second cab, he takes the third cab. And he takes that cab, he takes it around the block, gets out, and then maybe jumps in another car. Or he'll go into a building, go through that building all the way to the end, pop out the other side, go through a cigar store, pop out, and then jump on the train. In the Bourne movies, of course, Matt Damon looks fantastic doing it, and I would love one day to see someone do that as a shadow. That is counter-surveillance activity. It's right there from the very beginning. That is not common knowledge to the general public, certainly not in the 20s. So again, I ask myself, how did he know this? So then we get to the really good stuff. Now, steganography, I think, is relatively well-known. It shows up and makes for a phenomenal cover. These are you know, the absolutely collectible. Shadow, among other things, is known for his covers. Uh, but I think it's almost too well-known, so I can't give Gibson too much credit for using steganography in the stories, although I would say there's a variation on this theme that they do use. It actually ties into what ma magicians do, and that is emphasized words. So magicians, if they're working an audience, would have an agent, right, believed to be a member of the audience, would actually secretly looking for the magician, and they would interview or talk to people at breaks or before the story, and then through emphasized words, they'd relate key points to the mentalist who would then tell someone about their long-lost mother or their dog who's up a tree or whatever's going on. Emphasized words, of course, are also a part of the Shadows mythology through WNX and other radio exploits. This is where it really gets good. Who here is trained uh, in human intelligence or counterintelligence? Oh, good. Well, come on up. All right, well, come on up. Does anybody know what, uh, this should be C-A, big C, big O, little three. Uh, calcium carbonate, what is calcium carbonate? 
Chalk. Chalk. Yeah. So, chalk. So if a spy master has an agent, and we have a prearranged meeting site, and I say to my agent, hey, I think I want to meet you. And then he comes by and says, yeah, I'll meet you that day and time. And he makes a countersign. He crosses it or makes a dot or you know, anything you, that you want to do. All right, very nice. And then I walk by later and I go, OK, he knows I want to meet him. He's agreed to meet me on the information. I'm going to go ahead and get rid of that. Right? And I move on with my day. If he gets caught with that chalk, you can, you can keep that, sir. <laughs> if he gets caught with that chalk, I'm gonna make he can toss all it. Weekend. He, can, he can toss it, right? Because who cares? It's a 2% piece of chalk. It's not a shoe phone. It's not a Makarov and a shoulder holster. It's not anything crazy. All that stuff that's in the movies, do things like that exist? Yeah, but they don't get used very often. Do you know why? Because when you get caught with a special camera, at Customs and Immigration in Durka Durkistan, do you know what happens? <laughs> Bad things happen, sir. Bad things happen, right? So we use things like chalk. You know who uses chalk a lot? Uh, all spies, teachers, everybody, right? So getting caught with chalk, no big deal. Easily explained away. Not just a thing only spies have. So you, you say, okay, Tim, that's, that's great. Thanks for the hot tip on chalk. <laughs> I'm telling you, Summer and baseball go together, chalk and spies. If you get on your internet device and you Google espionage spy chalk, you'll melt it down with all the examples that are known commonly of spies using chalk to sign and countersign for, for drops. So then I get to shadow reprint number 48. So I'm 48 novels in, which would really be 96, right, or more. I'm reading them out of order. I apologize. <laughs> I had. And there it is, chapter 12. Rutledge Man resupplies Harry Vincent in the very second adventure. It's a throwaway scene. He doesn't put any emphasis on it whatsoever. He resupplies Harry Vincent with the three things that any good espionage undercover agent needs in the 1920s and 1930s. He gets a flashlight. He gets a 45, because what hero doesn't have a 45? And he gets chalk. He doesn't get suction cups. He doesn't get anything sexy. He doesn't get an auto gyro. He gets chalk. So now at this point, at Reprint 48, I'm saying to myself, okay, it's a done deal. This, this guy has got to know. And then I want to address the issue of the sanctum and the bluish light. Because I will tell you, as a huge comic and pulp nerd, right, I go through counterintelligence training, experienced, educated. I learn secret writing techniques, and I keep waiting for the ink. I want the ink. <laughs> the ink that goes on blue under the bluish light fades away. It's a, it's, Gibson's a genius. It's a great dramatic way to bring the readers along, to bring all the clues together, make sure everyone is following the bouncing ball so you know what's going to happen next. It fades, and then when it goes, the agent, when exposed to air, it reappears and then fades again. Unless it was put into a vacuum-sealed bag, it has always been exposed to air. <laughs> Gibson is a master magician. The effect obscures the method. How many times have you read that and said, oh yeah, exposed to air, it shows up and it doesn't work that way. You have to either have a chemical reagent, I think photography, you guys are probably remember, you probably don't, but there used to be this thing called wet photography, yeah. Or heat to bring things back. Unless, of course, you have another method that was top secret from 1917 until it was revealed 
used by Allied military intelligence, counter-espionage units, and naval intelligence. What I didn't know initially was how I was going to link this to Gibson, but I'll show you that in a second. So what is this describing? A black room, a bluish light. Think about it. Something glows blue under a bluish light. What is it? It's ultraviolet. Dr. Robert W. Wood. Now, I'm a distinguished honor graduate of The Ohio State University, and we all know that if you can't make it into OSU, you go to little places like MIT, <laughs> University of Chicago, Harvard, and ultimately Johns Hopkins University. I mean, he, just, he couldn't hack it. Dr. Robert W. Wood uh, applied physics to come up with what was called the Woods Lamp, black light, 465 nanometers, ultraviolet, which today we use to check IDs and do all kinds of fun stuff, but it's a bluish light and it glows blue in certain, ca in certain cases. Well, back in 1903 is when he came up with it. It was used initially just to diagnose diseases of the skin. He didn't use it for that. 1917, the war breaks out. He's a patriot. He goes to military intelligence and says, I have this secret communication device, and I can make it work with any light through a woods filter. So he presents a paper in 1919 after the war is over. We Americans have a tendency to just show all of our cards. Hey, we have secret spy technology. Oh, I wasn't supposed to say that. <laughs> Wish I hadn't done that. So in 1919, he goes to the French uh, Society of Physics and says, guess what I came up with? Secret communication technique used by naval intelligence, ship to ship and ship to shore, and secret writing. Ultraviolet ink that glows in the dark. So how in the heck did Walter B. Gibson have access to all of this? I'm not saying he just uh, mimicked all of it or copied it. The guy is a creative genius. He's known to have taken inspiration from various aspects and brought them together. The question is, how do they pull this off? Well, the, the clues are hidden all throughout. They're all throughout the shadow scrapbook in his own words. They're throughout his book that he wrote. Here's a big hint for you. How about we play a little shadow jeopardy? You tell me who I am describing here. Working in various disguises, a female undercover agent reports back on criminal gangs and fiends that prey on her fellow man. She clandestinely communicates with her master via cryptic chalk marks. Who is she? Who is she, Will? Is it Jimmy Dale? <laughs> Myra Reldon or Rose Mackenberg, an undercover agent who worked with the Society of American Magicians who would go in in various disguises, like Myra Reldon, report back on whether or not these fraudulent spiritualists were actually gaming and ripping people off, she would then mark the house with a chalk mark. Hmm. Energetic young newspaper reporter, recruited to serve a shadowy master, battling villainous scourge, plaguing America. Who is this? Is it Cliff Marsland? Or is it Walter B. Gibson? Walter B. Gibson was a newspaper reporter in Philadelphia who was recruited as you will see, spotted, assessed, developed, and recruited. He joined January 20th, 1919. Do you know why January 20th is important? That's my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> January 20th, 1919, he meets someone in July of 1920, and his life has changed forever. Does anyone notice anything? I don't know if it shows up well. Does anyone notice anything unique? Uniquely similar about this emblem, which has been around since 1903. 
Now, why is that? The public knows him as a famous and wealthy globetrotting adventurer. He disguised himself in the field and secretly as a shadowy history with U.S. counterintelligence and foreign intelligence services. From a New York sanctum, he hunts down and exposes crime via clandestine agent of networks. Anyone? Incorrect. <laughs> Sir. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. Harry Houdini. Harry Houdini, that's but one of the many disguises he would use. So after Rose Mackenberg and others would go in ahead of time as action agents reporting back to him through his network, he would then go in, sometimes in disguise, sometimes as himself. Harry Houdini, who has brilliant blue eyes that are described as burning like coals and a hawk-like nose. For those of you who are less familiar, that would be a description of the way the shadow is described. Harry Houdini, who was president of the Society of American Magicians from 1917 to 1926 at his death. Signed Walter Gibson's membership card. Yes, sir. Absolutely correct. Harry Houdini, who used an extensive network of undercover agents. Harry Houdini, whose ghostwriter, among others, was a young Walter B. Gibson, who had, oh, did I mention the central conceit in the shadow is that the adventures are real. That someone, Maxwell Grant, has exclusive access to the annals and that Maxwell Grant is simply reporting what actually happened with the shadow. Maxwell Grant, two magicians. <laughs> Guess who else had ex un unrestricted extensive access to the master's annals, his private library and all of his notes? I know because the people at the uh, National Archives in Washington, D.C., they're kind of getting tired of seeing me. <laughs> they know exactly where I'm going to go. Can I see the, yeah, it's right this way. How do I connect it? <clears throat> Dr. Robert W. Wood worked for Harry Houdini, exposing fraudulent spiritualists. They socialized. He was part of a team from the Scientific American that hunted down and exposed fraudulent spiritualists. And I'm going to offend someone sooner or later, so I might as well just go ahead and cut to the chase. Fraudulent spiritualism, I would say, is somewhat akin to somewhere between uh, the use of, uh, of drugs in sports that Congress investigates and Scientology, right? So you've got a victimless crime, someone chooses to believe in Scientology from L. Ron Hubbard, that's up to you, but when they steal money from people callously, that's when it becomes a problem. That's what Houdini could not put up with, and that's when he used the Society of American Magicians to spot, assess, and develop agents for his network to hunt down and root out fraudulent spiritists, not people who actually believe, but people who rip others off. Dr. Robert W. Wood, who created ultraviolet secret writing, connected to Harry Houdini, connected to Walter B. Gibson. The next time you read a shadow novel and he has his disappearing ink that exposes to air, you'll know what he's really talking about. My favorite of all the agents is Burbank. I have always been fascinated by Burbank. Burbank is the man. What was the inspiration for Burbank? Well, I think one of the inspirations for Burbank was this guy. What is Burbank? Burbank is a support agent. He's a cutout. No one should speak to the shadow directly. Right? It should go to protect everyone in the network. We're all part of a network. We go through someone else to get to the shadow. Who did that? Who did that for Houdini? Amadeo Vaca, a young Italian immigrant living in Chicago, spot assessed and developed by Harry Houdini, 
secretly sent back to New York on Harry Houdini's dime, set up in a barber shop. You know, Harry, uh, the shadow would sometimes meet Burbank in like a cigar shop or an all-night diner or something. What a great idea. Well, one inspiration for that may have been the fact that Harry Houdini did that via a barber shop for Amadeo Vaca, who was his technical agent. You want to bring all this together? The very first time that Walter B. Gibson met Harry Houdini, July of 1920, in his New York home, his sanctum, and they're having a conversation with the man that's introducing them, and the man writes out a note that says, what is said here can be heard. And Gibson, being a smart guy, realizes, hmm, something's up, and is careful. The conversation basically revolves around, when, when uh, Gibson meets Harry Houdini in July of 1920, revolves around fraudulent spiritualism, because Harry Houdini is testing the young Gibson, who he's known about, he's developed a reputation, and uh, decides, okay, I like this Gibson guy. You know who set up that wire job inside Harry Houdini's house? Well, initially it was done by the Secret Service, but it was refined and made better by Amadeo Vaca. Society of American Magicians went on to be a very successful magician. Some people don't think that the uh, plot line, the Silver Scourge, is very interesting because really silver is not that big of a deal. But you know, Harry Houdini helped out the U.S. Secret Service, this is historical fact, on a counterfeiting issue, which Gibson would know about because he had access, unrestricted access, to Harry Houdini's private journals. How about the idea of Myra Reldon? This is Mary Sullivan, special deputy, New York police. Mary Sullivan. What is, what is the Irish version of Mary? Myra. Myra Reldon. Mina Crandon. Does anyone know who Mina Crandon is? Mina Crandon, Myra Reldon. Mina Crandon was Harry Houdini's greatest adversary. She was the queen of all fraudulent spiritualists. And again, just to be clear, people that believe, believe. But people who don't believe, but exploit your belief, are what Harry Houdini was after. Mina Crandon was such a person. Mary Sullivan worked with the side of American magicians. I think it's interesting that when Gibson decided to bring in his first real female agent, her name, Myra Reldon, is very similar to Mina Crandon. Is Myra Reldon an amalgam, a, a composite of Rose Mackenberg and Mary Sullivan, and named in part after Mina Crandon. I mean, after all, we do know that Gibson was always under pressure to come up with new names. And his own pen name, Maxwell Grant, was a combination of names. It could be. It could be. I hope that you've enjoyed this evening. I love the shadow. And I think there's a lot more there than most people know. And my goal through talks like this is to make the general populace aware of how wonderful these are. When folks ask me what I recommend for spy novels, I say read the Sanctum reprints. If you like Ocean's Eleven, if you like uh, Now You See Me, or The Usual Suspects, or movies like that, subtle things, heist jobs, that's exactly what Gibson had sold at. Intricate plots, undercover agents, using real-world counterintelligence and spy tradecraft. Thank you. Tim? Sir. I have a question. I think that's one of the best presentations on the, on the yeah. pulse I've ever seen. Thank you. I learned a lot. Put it together very well. A couple of things I might question, I might not. I have to think about it. But I think it was a 
tremendous um, uh, analysis of what I think is, is probably very real. Uh, Walter, you know, he, he underplayed a lot of things, and he was very nuts and bolts writer. But I think he's made a very good case for it. You know, he knew what he was talking about. You know, the blue light is ultraviolet, maybe, maybe not. Uh, the inspiration. Yeah, maybe. Um, probably. Because when he said, you know, the, the ink, <laughs> you know, uh, disappears and exposed to air, he may have literally meant that because in pulse he could get away with stuff. Right. I remember. Right. <laughs> he had a story where the, where the shadow was in a black light was really, literally a black ray. Yeah, the black hush. Yeah, no, no, no. A different story where oh. someone was using an ultralight light bulb and Gibson had described as releasing black <laughs> Literally, so right. he didn't know right. everything he should have known. So yeah, you know, in bolt. some cases, you know, we, we, we might say he got lucky putting some pieces together. I think that was a very good analogy. Brilliant and creative man, perspective. absolutely. I also agree that it's one of the best presentations I've ever seen in Pulse Dimension. Thank you, sir. Um, I have an article in Works uh, from one of the future volumes, which I've had for some time, called The Shadows Mission, uh, The Shadows Impossible Mission with the premise being just how much formula of a shadow novel was that of the 1960s Mission Impossible TV show. Mm. Uh, various agents sent to infiltrate the, if you need to infiltrate the underworld, mm -hmm. Mars, Earth, and Hawkeye. Uh, polite society, Margo and Harry. Right. If you need muscle like Peter Lupus, Jericho Drew. Mm -hmm. uh, if you need technical things like Barney, uh, Burbank, right. it up. Right. And then of course you have in the character of Roland Hand, the master of disguise, you know, who's yeah. done various identities. And it all culminates going in a direction where you're not sure where it's going, where all these different pieces suddenly come together at the end. Which mm -hmm. is very much what happened in Mission Impossible and was very much the formula of the shadow novel. And, and the structure, I, I think, the 1960s Mission Impossible is the closest we've come on TV at least, to a shadow novel. Well, I, I think that's brilliant. I, I agree with you. Um, it, it, you. It's well documented now that the shadow was the inspiration for Batman, which is how my mother wrote me in uh, to, to the shadow. I used to get comics at the pharmacy down in Clintonville, just a few miles from here, three coverless comics for a dollar, and I had stacks and stacks and stacks of Batman. And you and Will have very well um, Detailed, the, the inspiration for Batman came from the shadow. I think Gibson was so far ahead of his time, so brilliant, that we're just now catching up. And I think a lot of folks, someone said once the pulps were like, uh, they didn't take offense, maybe it was one of you guys, they didn't take offense when things got copied from the pulps because who cares? It's like writing the menu at the local diner, it's going to change in a couple weeks, anyways, who cares? And yet you go back, you look at Doc Savage and the shadow and these others, and particularly Gibson, I think it's. Mm -hmm still underappreciated, and you go, geez, Louise, this guy was way out in front. And doing a novel every two weeks. I mean, you know, you right. have a mind that can... Uh, yeah. That's, yeah. You know, as, as Will has pointed out, Morris Ogden Jones, who was the assistant editor of John Nanovic, <laughs> tried cut, trimming Gibson's novels the way he did Lester Jansen. Couldn't do it. He couldn't cut anything else because it was so tightly interlocking. Everything was there for a reason. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Appreciate it. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp Net, when your next adventure was just a dime away. 
please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps.